Tonight it's a real pleasure to welcome Andrew Nosal. He's going to discuss the leopard sharks off La Jolla, California. Andy is a marine biologist and a postdoctoral researcher at Scripps Institution of Oceanography, student in two weeks to become an assistant professor. He received a bachelor's degree of science in biology at the University of Virginia and a PhD from Scripps Institution of Oceanography. He also has a keen interest in science communication. In 2015, he was one of five winners of the iBiology's Young Scientist Series competition. It's a new video series that features accomplished PhD students and postdocs presenting their research. He spent some time at the Alan Alda Center for Communicating Science, which is at my old university, Stony Brook. He grew up in New Jersey. Seems like an awful lot of marine scientists grew up in New Jersey. Not sure what the cause is for that is. Um, and it wasn't there, though, that he got interested in the ocean. It was when he spent a year abroad in Australia, he learned how to scuba dive, and explored the Great Barrier Reef. And later, after he was back at Virginia, he had an REU and a research experience for undergraduates at Catalina Island at the Wrigley Institute. And we agreed over dinner that uh, we're going to work with Andy and with Chris Lowe, who's also here, and create a new exhibit. And it's going to be about how sound influences the perceptions that we have of certain animals, not just sharks. But, and uh, maybe Andy will tell you a little bit about the experiment that he completed with Elizabeth Keenan, who used to be here in our education department and is now a professor in the Harvard Business School. So please join me in welcoming Andy Nosal. I'm really, really excited to be here. Um, I'm excited to be able to talk to you about what has become one of my favorite animals, the leopard shark. And what I'm going to be talking about specifically is this particular behavior, what we call aggregation behavior, this kind of gathering behavior that leopard sharks do at a number of different locations in California. Um, but I'll be talking about this one that occurs at the southern end of La Jolla Shores Beach, uh, which is in San Diego County. Has anybody been snorkeling with the leopard sharks in La Jolla? Just out of curiosity, a few of you. It's a wonderful thing to do. Um, the water is typically pretty clear, and so it, it's a great place to go and see these animals. So I, I want to back up first and just talk about what my interests are generally. Uh, in general, I'm interested in animal movement biology, which I think is best defined as understanding the causes and consequences of animal movement. So I try to identify some interesting animal movement behavior, in this case, aggregation behavior, and try to understand what the biological and ecological causes and consequences are. Um, I'm going to take one further step back and talk about humans, because we move, and our movements are also pretty interesting. Um, so take, take human movement at these three different scales. We've got people walking, people driving, and people flying. Now, all the people you see in these pictures, they're going somewhere for some reason. Right? There is, there is reason for those movements. And they might be different at these different scales. And you can imagine you ask all the people in these pictures their story, where they're going, why they're doing it. You'd hear a lot of really interesting stories. But my point is that our movements matter. We do them for a reason. And our movements matter so much that there are a few companies out there who I will not name, that are going through a lot of trouble to track your every move. If you have one of these on you right now, then you have been tagged, just like I tag my leopard sharks. 
And just like my leopard sharks, whether you like it or not, we are tracking your every move. Now, some people find this kind of creepy, right? An invasion of privacy. And you can always turn off your location finder if you want to. But you can also use this to your benefit and actually access your movement patterns. And so I did this last year. I tracked myself for one month. So everywhere my phone went, and my phone was always with me, um, it recorded a GPS position. And so these are what all those positions look like. And I'm just showing you what's happening in San Diego. So all those red dots was a 10-minute position over that course of that month. Um, now, we can look at these positions, and you, you, we can't make a whole lot out of it. Um, but we can start to plot some other habitats right onto the map. So if we plot some roads, we can see that a lot of my positions are on freeways. I think we can all uh, relate to that. Uh, we can connect consecutive positions to try to get a feel for what some of those main routes that I'm taking. Um, and, and you look at this map, and you might think that, wow, I really get around San Diego. I make this city look small. Until you realize that 90% of these positions are concentrated within these three boxes. So those boxes must be pretty important. So we can zoom in and start looking at what's happening there. So there's my house down in Chula Vista. That's where all of those uh, positions are. These are my two favorite stores, Starbucks and Home Depot. We can look here, we see my work, right? So up at Scripps Institution of Oceanography, there's my office, there's Scripps Pier. We see some positions over the water. That's me doing field work. Um, and then we have here where I was an adjunct professor at the University of San Diego. There's the, uh, the classroom there. There's another Starbucks. Um, so I can tell you all this. I know exactly what I was doing and why I was doing it because they're my movements and I can talk. Other animals can't talk. They can't tell you what they were doing. So that's why it's a puzzle to try to figure out what they're up to and why they're doing it. So when we look at these different pictures of animals, different movements of animals, it's just mesmerizing. I mean, you start to see these patterns that emerge when you look at the group behavior. And what's really amazing is when you start to consider what was happening in the minutes, hours, and days before these pictures were taken, and what was happening in the minutes, hours, and days after these pictures were taken. And sharks also exhibit a lot of really interesting behaviors, including a lot of group behaviors. Um, so you can see that aggregation behavior is quite common. Um, and they do it for one reason or another. And you know, there are a lot of practical reasons for studying sharks and rays. Yes, they're cool, and that's just icing on the cake. Um, but they exhibit these interesting behaviors, not just group behaviors, but seasonal and daily migrations, uh, sexual segregation. A lot of times the males are in one place, the females are in another place. So a lot of interesting behaviors. Um, they, at least the, the species that are along our coast, are relatively easy to catch, depending on what the species is. They do fairly well in captivity, again, depending on the species. Um, and they have fairly large bodies, which is important for tracking their movements. So tracking things like tags, they've come a long way in terms of miniaturization, but especially when you get fancy and adding sensors and cameras, they're still pretty big. And so you're, you need to be tracking fairly large animals. Now, the sharks that really got my attention when I got to uh, San Diego were, of course, the leopard sharks. So here's a picture of what they look like along a map here, right? So here's the San Diego coastline. So they are hanging out right here at the head of La Jolla Submarine Canyon. I'll zoom in on that in just a second. Um, I found out about these sharks. I wanted to get in the water with them immediately, so I got in there. Um, and if you can imagine, my first question was, well, why? Why are they aggregating, and why that particular spot? Why not a couple hundred feet up the beach? What is so special about that spot? So just a little background first. 
So the leopard shark is endemic to the western coast of North America, meaning it's found here and nowhere else in the world. And although its range spans all the way from Samish Bay, Washington, down to Mazatlan, Mexico, I'd say the core of their range is right here in California. And throughout California, as I mentioned before, these leopard sharks aggregate at a few locations. And I'm just going to show you a few of those locations right now that have been um, studied. We've got Humboldt Bay in the north, Tamales Bay, San Francisco Bay, Elkhorn Slough, which comprises the backwaters of Monterey Bay. We have Morro Bay, various bays and coves on Catalina Island, including right off of the Wrigley Institute there. Um, what was interesting about all of these sites is that, for the most part, they're all sheltered bays, coves, and estuaries. And that comes with it a few benefits, like perhaps shelter, food, warm water. Um, what stood out about the site in La Jolla was that it wasn't really in a sheltered bay, cove, or estuary. It was along the open coast, again, right in front of this submarine canyon. So I started to do some digging. I wanted to know, how long have we known about these sharks? Is this something that they've just kind of started doing recently? Have we known about them for a long time? So I started digging in the archives of Scripps Institution of Oceanography. And I actually found the original handwritten collection notes of Scripps professor Carl Hubbs back from 1950. So you see here it's dated August 3rd, 1950. And Hubbs noted catching three large adult trachea semifasciata in a beach zane just south of La Jolla Beach and Tennis Club. So the beach and tennis club are these red-roofed buildings right here. So Hubbs was fishing where we know the present-day aggregation exists. So we've known about these sharks for at least a few decades, right? At least since 1950. But they've almost certainly been there a lot longer than that. And we think that's the case because the conditions at this particular site were once very much like all the other aggregation sites. That is, this was once um, a sheltered lagoon and estuary. So there's evidence of this ancient La Jolla estuary um, in estuarine deposits throughout the canyon here. Most of them are about 16 to 27 meters in depth. There are outcrops containing mud, uh, silt, clay, and gypsum. Gypsum tends to deposit in very calm environments, so not really along an open coast, but there needs to be some sort of shelter there and still water. Fossils of brackish water ostracods, these little crustaceans. Uh, fibrous root material dated to about 8,000 years before present. So all of this is consistent with lower sea levels. So when the sea levels were a few tens of meters lower than they are now, this coastline would have looked very different. And we saw remnants of this estuarine lagoon in La Jolla Shores even through the early 20th century. So if you look at this picture right here, this is 100 years ago. Scripps Institution of Oceanography was just this building right here. Looking south, you can see the lagoon right there. It still existed. And there were times when it was open to the open ocean there. Here's another view looking from that mountain now looking north towards Scripps. Again, you see the lagoon right there. Now, in the 20s, La Jolla Beach and Yacht Club um, decided to start filling in that area, right? So you can see now it's a much smaller area. They weren't going to get rid of it altogether. They were actually going to open it up and create an inner harbor. So there was going to be this whole nice area here where the boats could become sheltered. Um, but as you know, you can't just have this opening along the open ocean. You would also need some sort of break, right, farther out, some sort of wall to, to, to block the waves from coming in. The problem is the engineers didn't really know about the canyon back then. So they're dropping stones and dropping stones and hoping eventually it's going to you know, start to rise and form a wall. Never happened. The stones just kept going down the canyon. So they scrapped that idea. You can see here they, they gave up. They were going to open it all the way. They did not do that. And now, instead of La Jolla Beach and Yacht Club, it is La Jolla Beach and Tennis Club. And the only thing that's left of that ancient lagoon is the small duck pond behind 
the, uh, behind the property there. Why am I telling you all this? I'm not telling you this because I'm suggesting that the leopard sharks are here because of what this site once was. It's not like they're still looking for this ancient lagoon. But the conditions were present here, were, so these sharks were likely aggregating here for a long time. Um, and even though the conditions are not the same, the sharks are still here. So the question is, what is still so special about this site? So we're trying to get at the question of why. We need to ask other questions to get there. Who are these sharks, demographically speaking? Are they male? Are they female? Are they mature? Are they immature? That would start to give us some clues as to why they're there. What exactly are they doing? This gets to the movement patterns and actually tracking their movements on both daily and seasonal timescales. Where exactly are they doing it? So um, what, again, what is special? What is happening around them at that particular site? And again, when are they doing it on that daily and seasonal timescale? So this is what we did. So first off, who are these leopard sharks? So over the course of several years, we sampled some 500 leopard sharks from this site. And what we found is that they are, uh, the average length is about 139 centimeters. Um, they range from about 110 to 164 centimeters. These sharks are maturing at about 100 or so centimeters. So these are mostly mature individuals. Not only are they mature, 97% of them are female. So the vast majority of these are female, equating to only about 3 in 100 of these sharks being male. So we can pretty much rule out mating as one of the reasons why they're here. We would expect safe sex ratios to not be quite that skewed if the primary purpose of this aggregation were mating. But not only are these pregnant female, or not only are these females, they're also pregnant. And we know they're pregnant because we conducted ultrasounds on them. We've also brought many of them back into captivity where they've given birth. And in no chance, in no opportunity where we um, had the chance to determine pregnancy, was one of these sharks not pregnant. So all of these sharks seem to be pregnant females. So now the question is, what are these pregnant females doing movement-wise at this site? So we're going to track these animals using two different methods. The first is called active acoustic tracking, where we actively follow the shark around. As you can imagine, we're going to be on a boat doing this, so the, the trade-off is time, right? We're going to get really fine-scale data, really great data. We can only be on the boat for so long, right? So in this case, we're going to be tracking these animals continuously for 48 hours each. And so we catch these sharks using hand lines, not because we don't know how to use fishing poles, but because this is actually a marine reserve. And the hand lines, aside from being more fun to catch the sharks, um, they are a lot less conspicuous. So we don't have to you know, worry about people reporting us. And we have the permits to be in there. But we don't need to worry about attracting unwanted attention. So we, we bring them in on hand lines. We scoop them up in a scoop net like that. And then we attach an acoustic transmitter. So we also call these pinger tags. They're about the size of your index finger. Um, they emit a pinging sound underwater. And in this case, these um, transmitters had uh, both depth and temperature sensors. So we were also getting data on how deep the shark was and what the temperature of the water surrounding the shark was. So we tagged eight of these sharks with these transmitters. Then we released them. And then, as I mentioned, we started to actively follow them. So we're on a small boat. And we have here the directional hydrophone. So it's this little guy right here. It's listening in one direction. And that hydrophone is mounted at the bottom of this rotatable staff. So we can rotate the staff, therefore rotating the hydrophone underwater. So you start sweeping, try to find the direction of the strongest signal. You zero in, know that's the direction of the shark. And then you can put the boat into gear and, and proceed to follow the shark. And the last bit of equipment here, that hydrophone is connected to this acoustic receiver unit, uh, which has a little LCD screen that's displaying um, in real time, the depth of the shark, the temperature of the water surrounding the shark, and then the little GPS here, which is taking GPS positions of the boat as we track the shark. 
So what did we find here? I want to show you first what these sharks were doing vertically in the water column. So here we have a simple graph here where we have depth below the surface in meters. And you're going to see here the percent of time these sharks spent at each of these uh, little depth bins. And what you find is that they're spending the vast majority of their time near the surface, 70% um, within the top two meters, or about six feet of it. And not only were they really shallow, shallow, like they weren't shallow out here, they were shallow and really close to shore. So we took some, we took some photos here with a, a big helium balloon and a GoPro looking down. And so you can see that a lot of these sharks are often at or even inside of the surf zone. So they're shallow and very close to shore. So again, why are they doing this? One thing that we thought of was, well, maybe this is a means of reducing predation risk, right? You can imagine if you're kind of hugging the coastline, you've now eliminated one direction from which you can be attacked, that being from shore. Um, the problem is that the main predator for leopard sharks at this site uh, is the bull or male California sea lion, which has become very proficient at getting leopard sharks in La Jolla. And in some places like Catalina, they have been observed to actually charge leopard sharks against the surf, almost beaching themselves, and then bringing the shark back into the water. So being up against the, or being up against the coastline may not really help so much with um, predation risk. So again, that brings us back to this question, why are these sharks so shallow and close to shore? So now what we started to think was, well, they're probably attracted to the warm water, which is going to be near the surface simply due to solar insulation. There's no other source of uh, warm water at this site. There's no river outflow. There's no power plant effluence. There's no geothermal springs. It's just the sun. So the warm water is going to be near the surface. And not only is it going to be near the surface, it's going to be close to shore because of our prevailing onshore breeze that's constantly blowing the warm surface water shoreward and piling it up in the surf. And again, that's exactly where the sharks are spending most of their time. So what this seems to be consistent with is this working hypothesis that pregnant female sharks and rays tend to occupy warm water, um, which benefits them by actually speeding up gestation. Right? So these are ectothermic. They're cold-blooded. Their body temperature is the same as the surrounding water temperature. So if they're, if they're occupying the warmest available water, their body temperature is at a max. And things like cell division, growth, metabolism, those things are all going to speed up. And so their gestation period would be hypothesized to be minimized. Now, their gestation period is already 10 to 11 months. And they give birth every single year. So you do the math. They give birth. Then they only have a month or two in which to recover, mate, and get the whole process started again. So you could see why it might benefit them to shave off a little bit of time from that gestation period. But couldn't they do that anywhere along the coast? After all, all I've said is that they're, they seem to be attracted to warm water that's shallow and close to shore. Why does it have to be at this particular site at the southern end of the beach? So it all comes back to that canyon. So here we have the bathymetry here. We have La Jolla Submarine Canyon. And what you're going to see here this is called the 95% kernel utilization distribution for those eight actively tracked sharks. This is like a density statistic that describes where we can expect to find the sharks 95% of the time. So you see that they're, and we also call this their home range. So you see that these sharks are hanging out in this area here. And this is the 50% KUD, which we call the core area. So this is where their movements would be most concentrated. Now we can plot those two density statistics on a map of modeled wave height. And we can see why this site is so important for these sharks. So the colors are as follows. The warm colors, like red, indicate larger waves. The blue colors indicate smaller waves. And what we found here is that the home range of these sharks 
is confined to this, this sort of nestled in what's called the divergence zone of low wave energy. So that's caused by the incoming swell being refracted or diverted away from the canyon head because of the way the swell is interacting with the bathymetry, the shape of the canyon. So that produces divergence zones here with small waves, convergence zones here with the red. Um, that's why if you're walking down the beach, you're going to see the surfers here. You're not going to see the surfers here. You might see some paddle boards, but you're not going to see surfers because the waves are quite small. And you see where the 50% KUD is located in that little blue area there where the waves are the calmest. So the question is, are these sharks just attracted to calm water? Well, maybe. But you would also imagine that calm water may be warmer water because there is more stagnation. There's less mixing with the deeper, colder water, especially if the only source of heat is the sun beating down on the water. And it turns out that, indeed, that area tends to be the warmest along the immediate coastline, typically by a degree or two, which may not sound like a lot, but given the choice, why wouldn't the sharks be here? The small waves might also make it easier for the sharks to access the warmest available shallows, which I said are up against the, the, the coastline where the surf is. Um, it's probably easier for them to access those warm shallows than it would be a couple hundred feet up the beach where the waves are quite a bit bigger and they're going to get a bit pummeled. So now I want to look at what these sharks were doing on a slightly longer time scale over the course of 24 hours. Um, so what you're going to see here is a track of a shark from the time we tagged it and then 24 hours through. So here we tag the shark. These are its movement patterns during the day, yellow the color of the sun, hanging out in that divergence zone of low wave energy. The sun goes down. This is what the shark does at night. So the movements are expanded. They are going down into the canyon. Um, typically about 50 meters or so into the canyon, and by the time the sun comes up, they are back to their normal daytime behavior within that general home range there. Now, they don't leave that area every single night. Sometimes they spend the nights here too, but when they do, they typically go into the canyon. So what's special about the canyon? We hypothesized that they were probably feeding on market squid, which are known to spawn in the canyon at night, um, and they would probably be pretty easy pickings for those leopard sharks. So to test this, we actually did a diet study. Now, years ago, when you do a diet study, you would probably catch a bunch of sharks, kill them, cut open their stomach, and see what was inside. People like leopard sharks. We try to treat animals. You know, We try to uh, set an example. Um, and so we got creative, and we tried to adapt a version, a non-lethal method called gastric lavage for use with leopard sharks. So what we do is we take the sharks, we put them on their back. That induces tonic immobility, kind of knocks them out, kind of relaxes them. And we insert that PVC tube down into their stomach, flush the stomach with seawater, swish it around, and then we take the shark, and gravity kind of does the rest. And what we found was that their stomachs were full of these market squid. There were some other things in there, too. You see a lizard fish there. They also had lobster claws and some other crab claws and octopus. So they're eating a bunch of things. But the squid were by far the most important. So that's consistent with that canyon also being an important food source. There's one of there's one of the octopus that we found in a leopard shark's stomach. So to sum up so far, who are these leopard sharks? They're mostly mature, pregnant females. What are they doing? They're hanging out in very shallow, calm water, right at the head of La Jolla Submarine Canyon. And again, we think that's important because of the calm water that's created by that canyon, which seems to sort of confine their movements to that particular area. And when, again, we think that this is consistent with this ongoing hypothesis that had been proposed by other researchers before me, um, that the pregnant females of sharks and rays tend to be attracted to these warmer, um, these warmer temperatures. And again, just icing on the cake, there needs to be food nearby, right? If the water was warm and that was all great, 
that doesn't really mean anything unless there's food, right? So there's food nearby, which, um, which is important for the sharks, obviously. So the outstanding question was, when exactly are they doing this aggregation behavior on both a daily and a seasonal time scale? So to answer this question, we use a different kind of acoustic tracking. So instead of actively following the sharks now, which we can only do for a couple days at a time, now we're going to be passively listening, passively monitoring these sharks for more than three years. So the way we do this is a little different. We bring the sharks on board. We did this to 20 or to 19 of them. We put the sharks on their back. Again, that induces tonic immobility. It's what we use as anesthesia. And we need anesthesia because we have to do a little surgery where we actually implant that acoustic transmitter into the body cavity. Now, we need to implant it because we want to track the shark for more than three years. And it's very unlikely that anything you put on the outside of the shark is going to stay on for three years. It's going to get tangled in kelp or seagrass or rubbed off on a rock. So inserting it into the body cavity is the only way to ensure that the shark is going to stay tagged. So then we suture up the, um, the incision and we release the shark. And we had 100% survival from this. The sharks recovered very well after being released. So, as I mentioned, we're not going to be following the sharks with that directional hydrophone. Now we're going to be listening passively um, with an omnidirectional hydrophone, one that listens 360 degrees, typically with a detection range of about 300 meters or 1,000 feet, depending on the conditions of the ocean at that time. So all of these receivers, they're mounted on these subsurface buoys that were dropped at various locations along the coast. I'll show you a map of that in just a second. And then every couple of months, we have to dive on these um, on these receivers to download the stored data from sharks that have swam within that detection range. So here's the map of the receivers that we had for this particular study. Um, they ranged um, from Southern Orange County on the San Clemente Pier uh, with the help of uh, Chris Lowe, all the way down to the Tijuana River, uh, which is a lot of fun to dive in if you're wondering. And of course, we had one here in La Jolla and we positioned it so that its detection range encompassed almost all of that home range. So if the sharks were aggregating at that site, we had a pretty good chance of detecting them. Uh, so over the course of the more than three-year study period from July 2009 until September 2012, we amassed over three-quarters of a million detections, so a lot of raw data. And what I'll show you now are some of the general trends we were able to extract from those data. So now we're looking west, right? So south is now to the left, north is to the right. And what we found is that these females exhibited strong daily fidelity to um, the La Jolla site. So if we look here, on average, our tagged female leopard sharks were spending 288 of their days at liberty within range of that, um, that La Jolla receiver, which was more than 10 times more than at the next most frequented receiver in Dyke Rock, which was just about a mile and a half north. So very, very site-specific. And again, that's consistent with what we're thinking, that the canyon's important, that site is very important for those leopard sharks. We also found that these females exhibited strong annual fidelity to this site. In other words, they were coming back year after year. So what I'll show you here, here are the years of our study. We tagged 12 females in 2009, another seven in 2010. And what you're going to see now is how many of these came back in each of the following years. So after one year, we still had 73.7% of our sharks. You see that a few of them left and didn't come back for one reason or another. After two years, we lost a couple of more, but we still have more than half of them coming back. And after three years, and of course we can only consider the ones that were tagged in the first year of our study, we still had 50%. So 50% of these sharks are coming back year after year after year without exception. 
And these numbers may very well be underestimated because we know that at least two of these sharks were captured and killed by fishers and therefore didn't have the opportunity to come back. And it wouldn't surprise me if a few more were captured but just not reported back to us. So again, very important daily fidelity and annual fidelity to this particular site. So what I'll um, wrap up with, with this particular section, um, is taking a closer look at what those six females did, the ones that came back in every year of our study. So what you're looking at here, these are the raw detection records. Um, each one of those is for one particular shark. Just to orient you, each one of those spans 24 hours from left to right, midnight to midnight. And each line going down is a different day, starting at the time of tagging, all the way more than three years later to the end of the study. And so if we zoom in, we can get a closer look what this looks like. So again, they span from left to right, midnight to midnight, each line going down is a different day. And every little black pixel you see there is a 10-minute time bin when that shark was detected at the La Jolla receiver. So wherever you see black, that means that the shark was there. Right? So we can already see some evidence of that day-night difference. Right? You can see that the sharks, there's a lot more detections happening during the daylight hours from about 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. That's consistent with what we found with the active tracking where the sharks are leaving some nights to go into the canyon, which is out of range of our receiver. But we also see some very strong evidence of seasonal patterns, right? Because we see that all the sharks are present. Then we see these big white gaps. Then they're present again. Then we see more white gaps. We also see some really interesting synchrony where some of these sharks are arriving and leaving within days, sometimes hours of each other. So we can summarize those seasonal trends with the following graph. So on the, on the y-axis here, we have the average number of females that were detected per day at the La Jolla receiver. And these, these were averaged into 24 half-month bins. So from the 1st to the 15th of the month, and then from the 16th to the last day of the month. So that's why we see 24 bars here going across. And what we see is there's this distinct high season where the sharks are um, most abundant from late June until early December. Now what's interesting here is that that does not coincide with pupping season, right? So we said that these sharks, they're all pregnant females. You might think, well, maybe they're giving birth there. But they're, they're known to give birth mostly in May or April and May. And so that's before a lot of these sharks really start showing up. Now, there are certainly some sharks around, so maybe some of these sharks are giving birth in La Jolla. But the vast majority of them are showing up after they've given birth and probably after they've already mated elsewhere. Because again, there's no males here to mate with. So they're mating somewhere else, they're coming back here. So when they arrive, they're probably in the early stages of pregnancy already. And we can look at some environmental variables, um, look at correlations to see, well, what might be driving this? Now, we can't say that these are causal, but they're at least interesting correlations that are consistent. For example, sea surface temperature. You can see that's really nicely correlated with, um, with their presence. Um, and that variable alone could explain about 86% of the variation that we saw in female abundance. And then you throw in a few other things like there, like wave heights and photo period, which is the day length. And we can explain a lot, of the, a lot more of the variation. So what does this all mean for these leopard sharks, especially in terms of conservation? Um, look at these sites here. So um, you, what you're seeing here, these are the uh, detection areas of our receivers to scale. So pretty small yellow dots. If we zoom out to our entire study area, those yellow dots are still to scale, but apparently very small. And then just to make a point, you can zoom out to the regional level and even to the whole range of the species, and those yellow dots disappear. So clearly, these yellow dots, as seemingly insignificant and tiny as they are, they're important, at least for this particular population of leopard sharks. And so it's really important that at least this aggregation here, it's protected by a no-take marine reserve. 
Um, you can imagine with all of these pregnant females in one location, if there were no reserve and there was actually fishing activity there, you could kill a bunch of leopard sharks in a day. And you wouldn't just be killing that particular generation, you're killing future generations as well. Um, now, these sharks are lucky that they have a marine protected area. And I say lucky because that marine protected area was established uh, in 1970 not to protect leopard sharks, but to protect abalone and the walls of the canyon. The sharks just kind of caught a lucky break. Now, a lot of the estuaries and places where they aggregate um, in California happen to be protected areas. Um, not all of them are. And in Mexico, there are a few aggregations that we know of as well that are not protected. And so you have to wonder, especially with widespread gillnet use in Mexico, how that might affect these sharks over time, especially when they're captured in mass. So again, what if they were not protected? It's a question we have to ask. So fortunate that they're protected. Luckily, leopard shark populations are doing very well. Um, but I think this, this shows the importance of small, strategically placed, no-take marine reserves and the kind of effect that they can have. So with that, um, I want to acknowledge all of the uh, undergrad and other grad student helpers that have helped me throughout um, my entire PhD, but especially this particular project. Um, a lot of time in the field, and uh, I'm very grateful to all of their, all of their help. Uh, and I want to thank you for your company, and I'm happy to take any questions you have.